We just sang about the Paradise Valley and what an uplifting, a thrilling song. And we certainly enjoyed participating in that as we rang out the beautiful message that we look forward to that Paradise Valley where perennial flowers never fail. It really is an interesting thought to contemplate, isn't it? Some of the features and aspects of what the Bible reveals to us with such hope. The book of Revelation fits rather naturally into that discussion, and we continue our series on the Revelation this evening. May I invite you to turn to that closing book in all the Bible. And as we look for the next few moments tonight, we're going to give some thought to an introduction to this book. I hope you'd remember with me that we began last Lord's Day a series of lessons, last Sunday evening that is, having to do with the book of Revelation. And it's true that that series is going to take us a bit of time to work our way through that. But certainly it should be if you and I will involve ourselves in it, a series that will be very encouraging and a series filled with victory and a series filled with messages from the God of heaven intended to provide us with comfort and hope. That opening lesson was one surrounding some obstacles that can sometimes occur in our way to our better appreciation of that book. We highlighted them and looked at them in some detail. But I thought tonight it would be a fair matter to come to a second lesson that I merely entitle an introduction. And I think you'll understand why I selected that in just a moment as we look at several of the features connected to a basic understanding of it and then some philosophies connected to its interpretation. As we do all of that, could I just simply point out some of these basic observations? I think we already mentioned last week some matters connected to the fundamentals. Who wrote it? To whom was it written? And when was it written? Matters, again, such as that. Let's deal with them one by one. You may have noted in chapter 1, verse number 1, we are told somewhat about the name of the person who conveyed this information on earth. In fact, may I just read that, and we'll not only note that verse, but he gives us his name in several other places throughout this book as well. Revelation 1, verse 1 reads as follows. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. And immediately we are called upon to appreciate a gentleman by the name of John was a critical conveying figure to bring this message, you see, to those seven churches of Asia which were to receive it. Now, you may have noticed John is mentioned here but his name is mentioned in other places as well. Would you cast a spotlight on verse number 9, please, of that same chapter? I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. One more time, the name John occurs for our appreciation, and it shall occur again in Revelation 22.9, as well as the features you and I can see most carefully in those verses we've just read. Now that immediately would challenge us, who was this John? You and I know that there certainly would be several selected choices. Could I add another thought to this, which might help to clearly designate who it otherwise might have been? You may notice in verses 9 and 10, that this person, John, occupies the role of a prophet. 
That is to say, he speaks forward and carries forward that which had been revealed to him by the God of heaven. And as if that isn't enough, look at Revelation 22 one more time, last chapter in the book. And in particular, could I call your attention to verses 7 and 8. You'll notice there that this person is expressly designated as a prophet. Now may I ask, that certainly eliminates many individuals who otherwise might have been called John in the first century. And that seems to point us to one final element of testimony. The church fathers, which I freely would admit were not inspired, but one could perhaps list two dozen of them, all of whom acclaim John the Apostle as being the author of the Revelation. I've listed just a sampling of them. Irenaeus point blank said that John the Apostle was the author of the Revelation. Clement, in fact, highlighted the same. Tertullian and Origen and Eusebius and all the others, they too so loudly declare that John the Apostle was in fact the writer of the book of Revelation. Now that clearly would harmonize with the actual acclaim of the book itself, but John, the writer of this book. You and I know quite well that John was not only an apostle, but we encounter him so often in the New Testament pages. He was the author of the gospel account according to John. He was the author of First and Second and Third John. With John being the writer of the, of the Revelation, that gives five New Testament books written by him, and that makes him second only to the Apostle Paul in terms of the number of New Testament books that he would have written. Even beyond the identification of the author, what about the place at which the book was written? That too can have a tremendous benefit and a bearing on our utility and a bearing on the approach we might take to the grandeur of the book of Revelation. In fact, we read it just a moment ago, but may I direct your attention again to Revelation 1, verse number 9. John himself makes a statement here that is a very revealing one. He said, I, John, who am also your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos. We seemingly have reference to an island, the name of which was Patmos. And John seemingly here identifies the fact that while he was there, he in fact received these visions and these revelations, which are the book of Revelation, and he penned them or wrote them for you and for me. You and I might ask, well, what was Patmos? What kind of island was this? Was it a luxurious kind of island that was used in the ancient day for tourists? Was it an island known for extravagance? Was it an island known otherwise for luxury from a variety of standpoints? And the answer is no. I've already given it away at the bottom of that slide that's down before you. But in the Roman Empire, this island known as Patmos was wi widely regarded in the following way. It's where the Roman Empire sent various and sundry prisoners who were in exile. That is to say, that's where the rocks heaps, in essence, were. And there's where these exiles, these prisoners, were expected to labor on behalf of the Roman Empire. At this point, maybe this map could be of some benefit to you and me. It shows you where Patmos was located. May I point out where Ephesus was? So Ephesus is this city. 
Again, as we've often noted, it was rather a seaport location having access by way of this small inlet. But if you look somewhat 65 to 70 miles south and west, you encounter this island. You notice it is really a member of a number of islands which occurred at that point in the sea. They're sometimes called the Greek archipelago, and Patmos was one of them. It was extraordinarily rocky. In essence, it was almost like a, ro a rocky mount that's highlighted out of, the, out of the actual nature of the ocean waters. But this is where they would send prisoners, at least one of the places. And this is where John was exiled. At this point, one might ask, how old was John by this time? Let me invite you to keep that question in mind, and we'll answer that on the next slide because it does have a bearing on this. But to move us in that direction, let's turn our attention to the date of authorship of the book of Revelation. When was the book written? Hasn't it been true that we have been greatly benefited as we have answered that question with regard to other books like 1 Corinthians and other books like Colossians? But when was the Revelation penned? I might point out that there are differences of thought relative to this one. But could I at least point out two and then perhaps give you some food for thought that might point us in a direction? First of all, at the top of that slide, there's a rather wide and considerable amount of testimony from ancient times which spoke rather definitively the, of the, in their view that the Revelation was written near the close of the reign of the Roman Caesar Domitian in the year 95 or 96 A.D. Now give some thought to that if you would. If that be true, then this would make the Revelation the last of the New Testament books written by a little bit of time actually. But not only could I ask it that way, that appears to be consistent with a number of observations that you and I might make about that book of Revelation. Some of those observations I'll list for you in just a moment. But perhaps in passing could I point out that Irenaeus, one of those individuals that we mentioned a moment ago, a highly respected and regarded person who lived in the first century, I'm sorry, the second century, he rather directly asserted that the book of Revelation was written by John while he was in exile in 95-96 A.D. So Irenaeus was very straightforward to that particular conclusion. But he was by no means the only one. I've mentioned to you on the slide another name of one of the ancient fathers, Polycarp. Now you and I no doubt would have a great and revered consideration for the faithfulness, the integrity, and the life character of the man known as Polycarp. If you've ever read about him, and I know we've mentioned him in Bible studies here at some point in the past, but Polycarp lived at a time when you and I might note it is said that he was an, he actually met John. Keep that in mind. Here was a person who actually lived at a time when John was still alive, John the Apostle. And Irenaeus, perhaps as a part of a conversation resulting from that, affirmed that John wrote the Revelation. It may be John shared with Polycarp. The reason I mention that is Irenaeus was a student of Polycarp's. So Polycarp might have had, in essence, a 
eyewitness account of the one who wrote the Revelation, and he might have shared that directly with Irenaeus, who wrote it down in one of the matters you and I have just noted. I say all that to say this. It would seem then that the book lends itself to an appreciation having been written about that time. But as I mentioned, there is another school of thought. And if you have read the writings of some, they will rather definitively assert the book was written prior to 70 A.D., before Jerusalem fell. It would seem to me that it would be a difficult matter to appreciate the book having been written at that time for reasons such as this. Would you think about the church at Laodicea? Now, I know we're going to study about that congregation when we arrive at chapter 3, but you remember they were lukewarm. They weren't cold, they weren't hot, and they were very displeasing to the Lord. I say that to say this, if the Revelation were written prior to 70 A.D., when was the book of Colossians written? Only about two years earlier. And in the Colossian letter, Paul highly commended the church at Laodicea. He pointed out that that congregation at that time was not lukewarm. At that time, they had not slipped and fallen into an array of apathy. Thus, that then seemed to be a little bit challenging to appreciate that if Revelation were written about this time when some would say, that seems not to match quite so well with some of the features that we notice about this book. I would assert to you I have found no reason to think that the book was written at any time other than about 95 to 96 A.D., near the close of the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian. And at that time frame, it will also harmonize with so many of the features that we're about to see shortly, not only tonight, but in the weeks that are yet to follow. As you come near the close of that slide as well, we have thus seen somewhat about when it was written and who wrote it and the circumstances surrounding where it was written. But what about the next question? And it's the one on this slide, and it has to do with what about the background, the backdrop, the circumstances that prompted its writing. I think you and I would readily agree the books of the Bible were not merely God having to drum up something to say. The books were written for a particular cause and reason to encourage and motivate various individuals and communities of people. So who received the book of Revelation first? And what benefit was it to them? Could I point out to all of us that if you and I are ever to come to grips with the Revelation, it shall be, among other things, to look through the eyes of those who first received it and what did it mean to them. You and I could not then assert the book today in some way that was not a valuable message to them, for that's the ones to whom God wrote it. It was written to the seven churches of Asia. Revelation chapter 1, verses 19 and 11. As you keep that in mind, then look at what's before you on this slide. It is very clear from various statements made in the book itself that it was written to Christians who themselves were being dramatically persecuted. And I mean persecuted extremely. Not merely insulted, and not merely called before others as if there was something rather trivial. Many of these found themselves in extreme tribulation. 
Some of them were put to death. Many of them found themselves like John, exiled in very uncomfortable places. And like I mentioned before, this seems the perfect time to say something about John. How old was he? Put some of these things together. If the book of Revelation was written in 95-96 A.D., and Jesus died in 30 A.D., you and I can easily calculate that that 65 years had passed from the time that our Lord died on the cross until the revelation was written. And you and I know that John was already a regarded and selected apostle at the time before Jesus died. So how old was John then? 25? Maybe 30? If that be true, if you add 25 to 65, you get age 90. John was an aged man by the time he wrote the Revelation. May well have been in his upper 80s, perhaps around the age of 90 or more. And now put that together with the fact that he had been exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Here was the Roman Empire in cruelty making a 90-year-old man crush a rock pile on the Isle of Patmos. Doesn't that sound interesting? Doesn't that sound challenging? When you and I reach age 90, how well will you and I be able to do it? One might even assert that this is a cruelty on the part of the Roman Empire to encourage and even demand that a man of that age behave like this. You can now appreciate why, perhaps in his elder years, we see John finding himself in this Isle of Patmos and now blessed by God with this book we call the Revelation, which was intended to not only encourage him, but those seven churches of Asia, and yea, Christians throughout all the ages who have found themselves in persecution, in affliction, and in oppression. Revisit that slide then with me. Isn't that also an understanding as to why the language is as it is? One of the things you and I noted last Sunday evening was the apocalyptic character of the literature in the book of Revelation. And again, the apocalyptic nature means that the truth is presented, but it is presented in signs and in symbols and in imagery. At this point, would you notice just a statement found in verse number 11? I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book. John what you see right in a book. You'll notice it's not merely what you hear. It's what you see. It's almost as if John was in the audience and a play was taking place before him on the stage. John, what you see, you write it in a book. And for that reason, one of the most powerful things you and I can utilize is our imagination so that when you and I read what John wrote, we're able to see what he saw, and we can then appreciate perhaps the truth that is to be understood that's contained within that presentation, the apocalyptic character of the book of Revelation. That also harmonizes with this observation as well. Given the fact that the Romans were so intensely persecuting the Christians of that day, one of the last things that the God of heaven would want to do was compose a book which would only make things worse for them. After all, if, let's say, the book that had been written just straightforwardly came out and said the Roman Empire 
is going to persecute you intensely. And these people are operating in the way of the devil. And they are going to find their end much like him. Well, don't you know that would have agitated the Romans? And they would only have increased their persecution against Christians. And so instead, the truth is presented in veiled language so that the Romans, even though they read it, they wouldn't know what it meant. But the Christians would know because they had the background of the Old Testament and they had the truth of God revealed in their understanding of the gospel and they would understand. And so when the city of seven hills is mentioned and the the scarlet woman who rode the beast in Revelation 17, the Romans would have no idea who that was. But the Christians knew. Isn't that interesting? And when we read about the sea beast and the land beast of Revelation 13, the Romans wouldn't have known who that was. But the Christians knew. And you and I can know. And so that's how this book, in some way, was in coded language so that the Romans wouldn't understand it. But the Christians did. And you and I can as well. That also is an important factor whenever the people of God are in times of oppression or in times of affliction, the coded language, or at least the principles of apocalyptic character in the book of Revelation can be so meaningful and so encouraging. One of the last things on that slide will be this. That book of Revelation is then a symbolically presented book. It signified Revelation 1 verse 1. The next observation is this, and this one will be key for some of the slides that are to follow tonight. What about the interpretation in terms of when were all these things to come to pass? Let's let the Bible speak for itself. Several times in the 22 chapters of Revelation, the writer himself directly said things which must shortly come to pass. Might we all be impressed with the adverb shortly? It's not to say that all of it was to completely be finished shortly, but at least the things in motion were to begin to reveal and these matters were to begin to take place shortly. Some of the other ways in which that's presented. At hand. More than twice in the book, John expressly says the things are at hand. Now, other times in the Bible, we know at hand means it's about to happen. It's not hundreds of thousands of years in the future. It's not yet a long way off. It's going to begin to take place shortly. Perhaps those two things lead me to one more. In Revelation 22, several times, verses 6, 7, 10, 12, and 20, all in the same chapter. And isn't it interesting? That's the last chapter in all the Bible. Chapter number 1,189. And in that chapter, shortly come to pass, at hand, and all the while that thing, those things are presented, we're reminded that do not close up the prophecy. It's about to happen. I think you and I need to use that as a guide and understanding to help us. And one last thing. I mentioned about the existence of persecution and this book is filled with references to it. John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos because of persecution, Revelation 1.9. We notice in Revelation 2, verses 7 and following, the church at Smyrna was told, you're going to be persecuted. 
and some of you will be thrown into prison. How much plainer could it have been? Revelation 6, verses 9 and 10. Some of the saints were slaughtered, put to death because of their faith. Revelation 20, verse 4. The saints that were beheaded for the cause of Christ, put to death and had their head chopped off simply because they were Christians. I could add to that listing Revelation 13, 7 and Revelation 7, 14 where with much tribulation they were to enter the kingdom and to exist in that kingdom. I suppose all of that might lead us to close that slide by saying, we've got the backdrop, and of that there can be no question. But with it, it casts a very strong spotlight to this next point. How then should we interpret it? As you and I have read the Revelation, we know that there are some fascinating things to be seen. Just the listing of some of them is an amazing set of truths. We've already mentioned we're going to see beasts rising out of the water and out of the land. We're going to be given measures of bowls in which vials are poured out, and it's going to contain the wrath of God. We're going to read about a dragon whose tail is so sufficiently strong it's able to move the third part of the stars of heaven. All of that's going to be interesting, and we're only getting started. That kind of language is certainly captivating and scintillating, but it immediately means that there are several philosophies that have developed over the years that are used to offer supposed interpretations of all of this. Let's list them one by one, and let's reflect on some of what we've learned tonight and see if the Bible itself points us that one of these might be the more correct one. First of all is this one. You can actually read Bible commentaries that will say that the entirety of Revelation it centers on the destruction of Jerusalem. Every bit of it. If that be true, it had to be written prior to 70 A.D., which you'll notice does not harmonize with the time frame we learned earlier. But those who, in fact, subscribe to that are very strong in their presentation. And again, you can find Bible commentaries that interpret all of Revelation in light of the Jerusalem's destruction. Could I offer a couple of questions or at least thoughts if that were true? If the destruction of Jerusalem is the central theme of the book, why was the book written to seven churches in Asia? What difference did Jerusalem's destruction make to them? The city of Ephesus is well over 600 miles from the city of Jerusalem. What differences would it have made to Ephesus to know Jerusalem was destroyed? What differences would it have made to Thyatira or Philadelphia or Sardis or Smyrna or Pergamos? That's a question to which I do not have any answer, even from those who've written those commentaries. It seems an awfully far-fetched idea to me to write to seven churches in Asia. Why didn't you write to the church at Jerusalem? Why not write to the churches in Judea if that was the central theme of the book? But the book wasn't written to them. In fact, they are not even directly mentioned. Not only that, we've already highlighted that to say the book was written prior to 70 A.D. would be to call into question the apparent time at which it was written. This just seems not to match. 
it doesn't seem to harmonize, and it doesn't seem to go together with what we do know from the book itself. And so why don't we set that interpretation aside? What about another one? You can find commentaries and Bible references that will place great emphasis in light of the revelation on the fact it is a testimony to world history. The famous commentary by B.W. Johnson takes that approach. Could I point out to each of us again some things we ought to at least consider? What's meant by this? To those who subscribe to it this way, they say the revelation details history in Europe as well as partly in America, in the period of time between the establishment of the church and basically the second coming of the Lord. And you can find references to wars in Europe, to wars in what might well be regarded as Eastern Asia. But all of that, could I ask all of us this question? How would those first century saints have heard this? What difference would it have been made to a struggling saint in the ancient city of Philadelphia to know that something was going to happen in a place called America 2,000 years in the future? America didn't exist then. It wasn't even a gleam in the distant past of anybody at that time. America, of course, didn't become a nation until the latter part of the 18th century. Could I point out that kind of information would have been, would have been nothing to people in the first century. They didn't know about America. They'd never heard of it. In fact, they know very little about what we would even regard as Western Europe. Not only that, consider what's next on that slide. Shortly come to pass. How beneficial would it have been to saints in the first century who were struggling so to know that 2,000 years in the future there was going to be a war in Western Europe? They had enough to think about in their own day and time then. May I submit to you the phrase, shortly come to pass, doesn't seem to harmonize terribly well with an understanding connected to what this world history philosophy often presents to us. Let's set that interpretation aside as well. Another interpretation you will often encounter is the so-called principled interpretation. Those who subscribe to this say, Revelation is not about anything particularly in history. It just has in it precepts and principles that can be applied to every age and every people who struggle in the Christian era. Now, I think we'd all agree Revelation can be a source of comfort when we're going through struggles. We would all agree that part of it likely is exactly true. But to neglect the historical aspect of the book is to ignore what's here. John said he was on the Isle of Patmos. That's a part of factual, scriptural presentation. No point in putting that aside. We read in this book of Revelation about, again, references to the Roman Empire. We cannot dismiss them. I would say then the principled approach goes too far. Though there are principles in it, we cannot remove it and eliminate the background in which it was written. And so identically, I think we should at least set most of that interpretation aside. What about a fourth one? As you'll notice on this next slide, there are others. And you can again find commentaries who will say everything in Revelation points to the end of time. 
think about that. All of these symbols, all of these particulars that are revealed, they say that in some way relates to the end of time. And don't we know the premillennial approach often uses it exactly that way. And you and I today can read many and even hear many televangelists who will connect matters in the Revelation identically and only to the second coming of Christ as if it has no bearing anyway to anything other than that. But you and I have already learned some things that call that into question. Shortly come to pass. Shortly come to pass. Things which are at hand. Again, John was told that many times in the book. Surely that should indicate that although there may be information in Revelation that's connected to the end of time, and of that there seems to be no doubt. We can't take all the book to that extent because there are some parts of it that refer to saints that were killed then, not something waiting to the end of time. I think we should set primarily that interpretation aside as well. That leaves you to number five. And this one, you've already appreciated with me that this one's to be expected. And it's the one that you and I will use time and again to help us be directed in an appreciation that seems connected to the way it was written. These saints in the first century were beleaguered, persecuted, under great duress because of their faith, and they needed a message to fortify their faith and encourage them to be faithful even in times of death, even in times that were so challenging. Can you well imagine it? some Christian or set of Christians that were already imprisoned. And the next morning at dawn, they were marched out to their death and they had a smile on their face. Can you imagine these Romans and said, what's wrong with these crazy Christians? We're about to kill them and they're smiling. What could possibly explain that? This is what could explain it. It may be the previous day somebody had read to them the book we call the Revelation. And it encouraged them, even in the face of their impending death, about a place far better than this earth. A place where God reigns supreme, not the Roman Caesar. A place where your every need is satisfied. They were starving to death in these Roman prisons. They were without water, and they were going to a place where the water of life we read about in chapter 7, they'd have access to perpetually. They were going to a place where the God of heaven heard their pleas and their cries, though the doors of Rome were shut to them. They were going to a place where the God of heaven heard their prayers, though the Roman Empire had no interest in them. You get the idea that they were looking forward to a place so often described in other places in the New Testament. I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Romans 8, verse 18. Have you ever thought about the fact that's in the book of Romans? The very congregation at Rome, who's the persecuting force behind so much against Christianity, that little church was told that the glory that's going to be revealed in us is far greater than anything that might be appreciated here. As you close that slide with me, Many, many times over the next several weeks, we will revisit the backdrop of persecution and see that embodied in the message of the Revelation. And we will find that as an encouragement to us that in spite of our challenges, 
which often can be far less than theirs was, at least now. But even if they were become far more intense, we have a message to which we can turn that will motivate our faithfulness no matter what. And that's the revelation and that's the philosophy that seems so consistent with not only what revelation itself says, but also the particulars which this book itself reveals. As you and I come to that slide and the one that follows it, it simply brings us to close our lesson tonight. The book of Revelation, the grand finale, the icing, if you please, on the biblical cake. We have learned so much in the 65 books that precede it, and now it's time to reflect upon the Revelation. That book written by the Apostle John in about 95 A.D., while he himself was exiled on the Isle of Patmos, of the very various interpretations that one might encounter, may I suggest for our consideration the interpretation that places this book squarely in the confines of first century persecution and intense persecution at that. Many of the Roman Caesars like Nero, Trajan, Vespasian, Domitian, and others, they would wage a very strong warfare against Christianity. Those people needed encouragement, and did they not get it in the book we call the Revelation? It might well be in that light, then, that we ourselves notice the apocalyptic character is perhaps understood from that angle. Next Sunday night, we're going to launch into an overview of the book of Revelation. We will at least take a lesson and try to extract some major themes and appreciations as it appears throughout the 22 chapters. And with that behind us, we'll launch into chapter 1 and appreciate somewhat about the initial prologue to that book tonight as we close this lesson. May I ask if there's one or more in this assembly whose life is not right with the Lord. If it was the case that those early Christians were so encouraged to be faithful and to never compromise faith, should we not feel that way too? And yet the devil wants us to compromise. He is so urgent in our willing to set aside the conviction of truth. You see, we can't do that. If tonight someone in this assembly, perhaps though faithful at one time, isn't as of tonight, you can make that right. The Lord Jesus will forgive whatever those sins have been and however many of them there have been. His blood can do it. If you will, in fact, humbly bow before Him in the sense of making repentance of those sins and confessing them, let us know that so that we can pray to God and we'd be honored to do it. If you have known what you need to do but have never become a Christian as of tonight, why not tonight? Sometimes we sing that song, why not tonight? It's a good question, isn't it? If you would wish to become a New Testament Christian this evening, won't you believe with all of your heart that this biblical testimony of the Christ is exactly of this one. And Jesus Himself declared in John 8, 24, Except ye believe I am He, ye shall die in your sins. You must believe in Him. But that belief alone is not enough. Because you see, we're commanded to repent of sins. That's what separates us from God. As you turn aside from them and make a verbal confession that Jesus is your Lord, we will then happily baptize you into Christ. 
the baptismal waters behind me are prepared and ready. And in just a matter of minutes, you could be a New Testament Christian. If you would wish to do that tonight, may we encourage you. The congregation here would love to encourage you in that way. If we could be of some assistance tonight, Brother Don has chosen a song of encouragement. Won't you come while together we stand and sing?